Hey, hey, welcome, Disability Law Show. Yeah, we're back at it. We're in your ear for the next hour. So uh, tuck in. we got lots to talk about. John Scholes here, Tamara Gopian, also alongside ST Lawyers, stlawyers.ca, or Sam Fury to Mark and LLP. You want to reach out, you can either way. Always encouraged to do so. Tamara and her team ready to take your call, have a chat. Could be something very simple or more complex. You're baffled by Always make the phone call. Knowledge is key. Won't cost you anything to pick up a phone. Anytime, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. I see a ton of emails and questions coming in already for the show uh, tomorrow. We can either dive right in, pal, or if you got something to uh, first warm us up with the week that was, it's your call. What do you got happening? Let's let's warm up, John. Let's warm cool. up because I've been working on something that you know really resonated with me because we've talked about this a few times in the post-COVID world. And so I thought I'd start out our show talking about this issue again. And it's this idea that insurance companies are using this work from home option as an option to deny disability claims. And so, you know, they get creative and we've seen lots of issues coming out of the post COVID world, the long COVID issue we talk about as well. But this one in particular came out of, I'm working on a claim for a client right now where he had very progressive, severe osteoporosis and a compression fracture in his back. And so it was exhibiting itself with chronic pain in essence. And he'd sort of muscled through it for a long time. He worked in one of these kind of call center type uh, roles in person. And, you know, they have cues, they have calls, they have targets they've got to meet. Uh, Not an easy job by any means. And he got to a point where there were some changes in his work setting. Obviously, he was relegated to work from home um, in 2020. And things just went from bad to worse, both from a physical health perspective and a mental health perspective. And so he and his doctors ultimately decided he was going to stop working and assert a disability claim. And he didn't really have much issue on the short-term aspect of it, though, mind you, it wasn't the same insurer who was dealing with long-term. And then it came to this long-term claim, and it was denial after denial after denial, where he continued to try and appeal and explain to the insurance company, you know, the progression of his health issues and what was happening even with his anxiety and his depression. And they kept just, you know, it's it, John, it's interesting. You look through these claims files, right? It's like letter after letter saying the same thing with different words. And so people keep getting these denial letters when they appeal. And they think that the insurance company is actually revisiting, legitimately giving them a a shake to try and revisit and look at the claim in a different light. But they're giving the same answer, which is just a no, a no, and another fancy way of saying no. And so one of the reasons, the cornerstone of the insurer's decision was this idea that my client had been working from home before uh you know his disability claim and so (laughs) assumptions were made that because he was working from home he absolutely had flexibility to you know do whatever he needed in his work environment to accommodate for his back issues and to take breaks when he needed and deal with all the other health issues that he was he was asserting disability for and that fundamental assumption could not be further from how i think a court would look at this because it really is and was a temporary situation. We know this. We know lots of companies have been asking their workforce to return back to work. Look, some employers have created hybrid models and other things, but by no means should it come into the analysis of whether or not my client can do his own occupation. And the occupational duties are that those words are actually built into the definition of total disability 
at least out of the gates as to whether or not my client was disabled from doing um, his job. And so it sort of boggled my mind because my client actually tried in one of these appeals to explain this to the insurance company to say, look, you know, this wasn't, you know, something that uh, was, I had no flexibility at home. It wasn't something that I could necessarily arrange to receive or accommodate. Um, And they were critical of that. They said, well, why didn't you ask for accommodation? That would have been a better option for you to do. And so, you know, I think as this plays itself out, and I and I said to my client, look, the, this is not one they're going to run to trial. They they know they cannot credibly stand in front of a judge or a court and say this is our position that because he was working from home he could keep working. But by the same token, I thought I I came across this this nugget in the claims file where the employer also confirmed to the insurer that this was not an accommodation issue that he would have required an ergonomic assessment and they would have gone through that whole process with him yeah. if there was something that he could do. But the bottom line was that he wasn't capable of actually doing his occupational duties for a whole host of reasons. And the mental health component was sort of being brushed under the carpet because the insurer was so focused on this idea of the work from home. And so look, for our listeners, I think there's a few key takeaways and you know we can talk about the employment side during our employment law show, but just on the strictly on the disability aspect of it, it is not a correct answer for the disability insurer to say to you that just because you're working from home, it means you can work. Okay, they need to do a critical evaluation of your occupational duties, the main things that you do day in day out, and what your all your health issues are that have been presented to them as disabling. So they can't cherry pick that, you know, it's just the back issue and you've always had this issue, so you should be able to just keep muscling through. They have to consider if you've got other emerging health issues and the progression of those issues. Because at the end of the day, if your doctor is supporting you cannot work as a result of your health, those benefits should be approved. And I think what frustrates the process is this idea that someone can continue to appeal. And, yeah. and this is the other part of this, right, John, is that you know, it, it it shocks me that, you know, the insurers will reframe their letters to make it seem like it's a, it's a legitimate process. It is not in the policy, folks. You, you can look at your policy, put it into PDF, put in the word appeal, and I can assure you, you're not going to find it in your policy. And you're also not going to get a lot of transparency from the insurer as to who is reviewing the appeal. Is it the same adjuster? By the way, it usually is, at least out of the gates, and what requirements they have to respond to you, whether they actually have to have you assessed or do a medical review. They, they are not bound to any of these things. It's just simply this idea that they need to give people recourse, and they're hoping that by you appealing that you're either going to give up or you're going to be well enough to return or some combination of the two, and that you're not actually going to seek your legal rights and find out whether or not you've got a basis for a legal claim. Because when you do, you're going to be hopefully speaking to a lawyer like me or someone on my team who's going to say to you, this is bonkers. This is absolutely a basis to start a legal claim and press the insurer for not only the benefits that you're entitled to, but actually doing what courts have slapped wrists for against insurers in the past, which is to cherry pick information or to, you know, not look at it comprehensively, not give a fair shake to to the uh, claimant. These are all reasons for courts to have awarded more compensation, extra contractual damages is what we call it, against these insurers who are continuing to do this. 
And this insurer is one of those insurers, John, it's one of those insurers who has been, you know, in the public records that have had problems with their adjudication in the past and <laughs> has been awarded hundreds of thousands of dollars in punitives against it. So look, you know, I like where I'm sitting with my client, but I think for our listeners, when they're, when they're thinking, look, what can I do in a situation like this? You know, I think it's important to at least reach out, have a conversation with one of us. Our consultations are completely free. We want to just push out information so that people can make informed decisions for themselves, with their family and their medical team about what makes the most sense for them moving forward. The interesting uh, piece of that you mentioned was the the mental health component, which is often glossed over by the insurance companies, even with, you know, the, the, the building reservoir of long COVID claims that are going out there, unrelated to this, of course, but I just find it's amazing that insurance companies are still having a tough time warming up to the mental health component and kind of saying, ah, you know, suck it up. You know? the, the thing that I see a lot now, John, is, well, we acknowledge that you've got symptoms for your mental health condition. So we, we oh. acknowledge you've got anxiety. We acknowledge right. that you've got depression. But we think that with treatment, you can still work. And many people many people have mental health conditions and they still work. This is the answer for a lot of adjusters to these claimants. And it just, you know, it's it's so lost on on these adjusters that if a person has such significant mental health conditions that they are at a point that they cannot work, to have the adjuster be so dismissive is so insensitive, just completely offside for what the true nature of these conditions can be, okay? And and I think part of it is to do with the lack of training. And I think these adjusters just simply don't have the right training, medical or otherwise, to understand how these conditions impact people and being dismissive of them really is not the answer. And that in fact, they're making things worse for a lot of these claimants. And so instead of, I, I, you know what this reminds me of, John, is a conversation I had with uh, someone who had reached out to us a few months ago saying, Tamar, if they had just approved me and given me the time that I needed to heal and to do the work that I needed with my therapist, I would have been back at work by now. And that to me is amazing because the vast majority of people don't actually want to be on disability. And I don't think these adjusters understand that. And they just lack overall sensitivity or any knowledge really medically to understand how these kinds of disabilities can impact people and truly be so disabling that it, it prevents people from doing their occupational duties. And with that, a uh, wonderful opening, my friend. We'll take a uh, short break. Get back in your emails that you've been sending along feverishly, by the way, over the last week. Thank you so much for those. And going forward anytime, not just for the radio show, but uh, to reach out personally, it's help at disabilitylawyer.ca. Help at disabilitylawyer. Uh, pardon me, help at disabilityrights.ca. Uh, to reach out to Mar and her team and the phone number, 1-855-821-5900. Any other questions can be asked at a website called mydisabilityquestions.com. That's a beauty. It's free. It's anonymous, so you can use that anytime you'd like. So we'll dive into those after a short break. Stick with us as we continue. Lots more of the Disability Law Show is just ahead. All right, we're back. Disability Law Show, good to have you with us. And uh, lots more to cover here, emails and questions alike. A couple different ways you can do that. Uh, well, other than getting it on the show and having me recite it, you can also phone tomorrow and her team and uh, get a hold of her this way, one 855 And that email address is help at disabilityrights.ca. Okay, tomorrow, here we go. Pat is first up, says, guys, I work for a city and a union member. I had a heart attack last year due to stress. I was pressured to return to work a few months ago, which I 
tried, but found my physical and mental health quickly deteriorating. I was still under the care of my doctor, and she agreed I was unable to return to work. The insurance company denied my medium-term disability from uh, about a month after I returned. Uh, through my uh, union lawyer, I was told to, quote, appeal their decision. Is this the proper way to proceed? I've been told twice that the city's benefit society has asked the insurance company to review my file and have been told by the union lawyer that I have to wait for their response before an appeal can even be filed. I did not apply for long-term disability because I thought it would have been back at work by now. If I lose my appeal, I will have to repay over $10,000 tomorrow. Any advice would be super. What do you think? The old appeal. Boy, Pat, there's, yeah, there's a lot to unpack here, John. And so, so before we get to the appeal part, I think what I want to address first and foremost is this idea of being a union member. Okay, let's start there because uh, what I'm hearing is that most unions are telling their their members you have to appeal, and in fact, you have to appeal before you can even start a legal claim. And I want to disabuse people of this notion because that's not necessarily the case. Okay. And in fact, in most instances, that doesn't need to be a requirement before you can proceed with a legal claim once you are denied. So if you're denied by the insurer, that is the starting point, folks, to start that legal claim. That is when the time clock starts for you to initiate a legal action against the insurance company. And so whether you are unionized or not, most unionized people, we can actually help. But there is case law in Ontario that some unionized people have to go through their union and their grievance process through their collective agreement in order to assert those rights for disability benefits. But that is a small minority. And so when we have unionized people contact us, John, our first step amongst a whole host of things that we try and do right away, which is get a consult in place and get documents exchanged, is to actually look at this collective agreement so that we can make that determination right away and tell people, look, your collective agreement is silent or doesn't inform us. You know, you want to talk to your union, but if there is no issue or barrier for you to hire us, then hire us. Let's start this process and let's not play this appeal game. Because the appeal game is a game, truly, as I was saying at the start of our show, that, you know, you're going to get into this unfortunate situation where you're waiting on the insurer to make the decision. You're waiting on them to do something when you've done everything that you can to demonstrate that you cannot work. And so I don't like that idea for Pat for a whole host of reasons. But just on the last aspect of this union piece is this. He makes reference to some kind of municipal benefit society. I picked up on that in his email. And so it could be actually that Pat is in this narrow category of individuals who has to go through his union to assert his legal rights. Because some of these benefit societies, John, when they're municipalities or government-based, not all government-based, but municipal ones in particular, sometimes they have a trust that that members pay into, and then that is what pays out for disability benefits. Oh, wow. Which is very different, right? It's very different. It's like a trust. Very different than the kinds of policies that we typically talk about on our shows, which are private disability insurance companies, They receive premiums usually from your employer or an individual, and it is those premiums that then ultimately get paid out if you are, you know, successful in in getting your disability benefits approved. And so why is that important for Pat in the context of everything else I've said is that if he is in that category, if unfortunately he cannot assert his, his legal rights to disability benefits through a legal claim, 
then he may actually be stuck following what the union has advised, which is you got to go through the appeal process. And so, look, I think this particular situation with Pat, I'd like to see the collective agreement. But just for the purposes of our show now, I just want to make our listeners live to the fact that the vast majority of unionized people don't have to go through that appeal process. Now, why is that appeal process so problematic? Other than the four things I've already said about it, I think at the end of the day is the timing. And so you can see with Pat, right? I mean, he he felt pressured to return back to work. That's a tactic for insurers, absolutely. And then his doctor pulled him off work because it wasn't a successful return. And so now he's being met with the barrier of having to demonstrate yet again that his disability is is real, that he cannot continue working, that there are health issues that are preventing him from doing his occupation. And when you are resisted this way, there's no obligation for the insurance company to look at your situation differently. And in fact, I've seen once they get you off claim, they really don't want to have you back, even though the vast majority of disability policies have a section in them that says, you know, if your health issues recur, if you're again incapable of working, then we will start up those benefits again and you don't have to do the waiting period and and they're going to kick back up. And so Pat is in a really, really tough spot. And the idea that he's going to have to wait out this appeal and then potentially have to repay money that he received, I think I'm assuming from his employer, but maybe it's the insurer. Mm-hmm. Then at that point, you know, you might as well start asserting those legal rights. And so I think with his situation, the key really is the medical information. Very, very critical, not only when you're contemplating a return to work, but when you're also then in a situation where you've got to stop that return to work and go back on disability. You want all of that information to come from your doctor and not so much from Pat because insurers are very cynical, John. They always think people are trying to just simply sit at home and collect their disability checks. Nothing could be further from the truth. But in situations like this, the medical becomes critical. So what I'd like to see from Pat is his own doctor sort of doing that analysis of here are these three or four occupational duties that he had. Here are the three or four health issues that prevent him from doing those duties. And this is why we pulled him off again, because he needs further treatment. This is the treatment plan. And, you know, I expect to reassess him in, you know, three to six months or what have you. And so I think that in a situation like that, you are then in the best possible position to assert back to the insurer that you're entitled to those benefits. And that would be my advice, John, whether it's an appeal or a legal claim. So if he is in that category where he has to appeal, then I would say make sure that you rally the doctor, that it's not just simply a verbal agreement or a clinical note. But in fact, the doctor is preparing a comprehensive report explaining the whole progression, the attempt for the return to work, and why the decision was made to pull Pat back off and try and put him back on disability. That municipal benefit, I mean, if it's if it's if they do it automatically or in in you know um, in conference with the insurance company, that's fine. But if this is something that he has to apply for, I don't think he laid that out. I would do it now if it's a municipal government thing. Right. I would do it now. <laughs> Because, <laughs> you know, there's there's going to be no, they're making haste on that one, right? You know what I mean? Absolutely. You picked up on a really good point there, John, because he says to us that he didn't apply for long term. And so he was in, I think he said medium term. So that's something some insurers have this between short term and long term. They have this medium term. So something in between. 
Um, we don't talk about it a lot because we don't see it a lot, actually. Usually, most people will transition from short-term to long-term. But what's critical is that they all, whether it's short-term, medium-term, or long-term, they all have specific time frames in right. which you need to make an application. So I 100% agree with you that I would not delay, Pat. You want to make sure you put in that application, especially since your doctor is saying, look, we're pulling you off work. You can't be working right now. And so the likelihood is, is that this these health issues are going to persist and continue to prevent Pat from working. And so why would you not pursue that LTD claim? And the, the biggest downside there is that if you don't actually apply, you don't get, number one. Number two, the courts have said if you don't meet those notice provisions and you don't have a reasonable basis as to why you didn't notify the long-term disability insurer of a claim, then the door may be closed as well for you. So you don't want to miss out on those timelines, okay? And so I think in the normal circumstance, if you're you know, if you've got short-term and long-term through your employer, through a group plan, and, you know, it's it's an insurer who's, you know, getting premiums remitted, the norm would be typically around the six-month mark after you started to go off. So you go off, within those first six months is usually when that LTD application has to be made. So I always encourage people, if you're at month four, you got to have a hard chat with your doctor, Okay. Yes. You don't, you don't want to wait till the absolute last moment to assert that, that, um, that application, especially when the short-term and long-term insurers are different, okay? It becomes even that much more important to notify the long-term disability insurer of your claim and even just submit your form, even if your doctor is taking time with their form or whatever, because at least you've alerted the insurance company that this is coming and that your your disability claim is going to persist beyond the short-term period. You know, some insurers will cut off benefits month in advance. We, you've talked about that before. Uh, would your advice be any different for someone in that situation who's been cut off but still getting the LTD? What do you think about that? Yeah, it, it's sort of interesting because I, I'm seeing this a little bit more, John, where the insurer will take sort of a... a a preemptive strike, so to speak. They, they'll, they'll look at the medical and they'll, they'll just assume, you know what, nothing's going to change. And so we think in six months, you're, you're not going to meet the test of disability and we're going to cut off your benefits at that point. And so we'll prepay you for six months because we know that, that you're not going to meet the definition, let's say. And usually that is when it's happening is when there's a change in the definition to continue to qualify. And so what do you do in a situation like that? Does it make sense to start your legal claim now when you know that you're expecting LTD benefits for the next six months from the insurer? Is it premature? And I think you may have dis- different thoughts in our team about this issue, actually. And, and, I, and my preference, frankly, is sooner the better, okay? Once the insurance company has denied your claim, like I said, it crystallizes your right. It, it, it makes, formalizes your right to, to assert to the insurance company, well, look, you've made a decision. I don't agree with that decision. You don't have to wait the time frame because they didn't wait the time frame and you can start that legal claim, especially if they've prepaid you for that amount, right? And so if you know that that amount is coming and it's coming regardless and that they're not willing to give you a fair shake to continue to fairly adjudicate your claim for the next six months, then by all means, why would you wait? You know the inevitable is going to happen. And if 
it looks like you and your doctors have determined that you're not going to attempt a return to work. And even if you were to, if your benefits are expected to continue or should be on that time frame, then I say, go ahead. You should start that legal claim. At the very least, contact us, please. Let's at least have a conversation about where you're at from a health perspective. It's usually a medical question, John. So the idea of people getting sort of prepaid and seeing whether or not they're going to continue to remain on disability is a medical question. But from a legal perspective, right, you don't want to miss out on the opportunity to assert those those legal rights. And what I don't want to see happen is people sort of waiting for the inevitable and then being without income, right? Then, then you get cut off. You don't have the financial means. I mean, look, we, we work on contingency, so you pay us nothing unless we're successful in resolving your claim. But I still don't want to see people in that kind of distress, you know, stewing about it over the next six months, knowing that those benefits are going to end and that they haven't taken action. At the very least, please reach out to us and let's have a conversation. Because I do think that in situations like that, most insurers are really poor footing by preemptively sort of um, ending benefits and not doing what's right, which is to continue to review your claim fairly and look to see what the progression of your health issues are. Let's get into that uh, short pause uh, tomorrow. we got lots more email. Emily, thank you. I just got it. We're going to get to your email next. It's a good one, so stick around for that. Again, you can also email us anytime, help at disabilityrights.ca. And the option of mydisabilityquestions.com, I will get to a question from there that just came in as well. Lots more to go through uh, here with the remaining uh, remaining time. And always feel free to reach out to, to Tamar anytime as well, one 855 We continue. More of the Disability Law Show is coming up. Hang in there. You bet. We're back. Disability Law Show continues here. Thank you uh, for your input. If you've sent along an email or used mydisabilityquestions.com to ask your questions as well. Uh, as promised, Emily, thank you so much for this one. It says, guys, I've suffered from chronic pain for years, but I've managed to work. More recently, my doctor put me off work because of severe stomach issues and eating problems, but my insurance company denied my STD claim, telling me pain alone is not sufficient to support a disability claim since it's subjective and there's no diagnosis validated by test results. My pain issues are secondary, though. Insurer is saying I can still work with accommodations in my clerical duties while managing the pain. Can the insurer deny me on that basis tomorrow? This is a great email, Emily. Yep. Really well worded. I appreciate it. So, so look, I think that there's there's a few things going on here, right, John? And so, one of the things that disability insurers or adjusters will look at is your medical profile as you're coming into making that disability claim. They will most most likely have some kind of insight on what your past medical history is, because the forms will actually allow your doctor to put that information in. So, you know, is there you know when did these symptoms begin? Is there other, uh, you know, contraindicated, you know, health issues or secondary health issues? The form specifically will allow the doctor to include that kind of info. And so when you have a fairly significant health issue going into it, right, going into the disability claim, but it wasn't actually that issue that put you off work, the insurance company will consider all of it and maybe be influenced by it. And so here's my theory of what's going on in Emily's situation. I think they're seeing the chronic pain. I think to her credit, they're seeing the fact that she continued to work. And they're looking at something that maybe is more temporary, like the stomach issues and the eating disorders, and thinking, we're going to resist this claim because even if Emily is able to resolve these 
more acute, more problematic things that are happening, she still has this backdrop of the chronic pain. And so if they were to resist her out of the gates, then at least they don't make it to the point where they have to pay either more short-term disability benefits or certainly not long-term. Because she does have the type of profile of someone who may not be working. I know lots of clients and people that I've encountered who just chronic pain alone has put them off work for the rest of their lives, unfortunately. And so what can Emily do? This is the real question, right? She wants to understand, well, look, is it correct for the insurance company to deny me just on the basis of the fact that my pain alone, being that it's subjective, is not enough? No, Emily, that's absolutely incorrect. The courts have been clear. The highest court in our land actually has said that subjective symptoms like fatigue, like anxiety, like any of these pain, you know, any of these conditions, subjective symptoms alone are sufficient to substantiate a disability claim. The source of those symptoms are irrelevant. Whether she's got a diagnosis or not is not relevant to the discussion around whether she meets the test of disability. The question is, can she do her occupational duties? She says to us she's, she's in a clerical function. And if she and her doctors have determined that her stomach issues and her eating problems are preventing her from doing those duties, then she, in theory, should be approved for disability benefits. The test is the same, John, at least at the initial phase, whether it's yes. short-term or long-term. So that aspect of her claim, I, I'm not too fussed about that, other than the fact that, you know, really, she's she's probably gone for some time now without her income. And so that's a problem in my mind. Maybe she needs to pursue long-term as well. But when you're looking strictly at the analysis and what she tells us, that's a problem for the insurance company, big time. Because just because you can't see the disability on uh, uh, an x-ray, just because you can't test it in, in the ways that we normally would think doctors to test, let's say blood work or what have you, doesn't mean that it's not legitimate, doesn't mean that it's not disabling, doesn't mean that she shouldn't be getting her disability benefits. And so I think that, again, maybe what's happening is, you know, has her doctor explained this appropriately? Is the adjuster focusing on the pain element and not the more acute symptoms? Perhaps there isn't a treatment plan in place. It, it's hard to say here, but I think at the end of the day, you know, if she continues to be met with resistance, this isn't this is something I would have no hesitation taking on, John. I, you know, we absolutely will represent individuals in, in profiles like this because the entitlements could be significant if, in fact, the severity of her health issues won't resolve and she's got this additional issue of the chronic pain for a number of years. It's too easy for disability insurers, I think, to say that, well, you can just be accommodated at work. I also think it's too easy for employers to say, well, we don't need to accommodate you. You should make a disability claim. It does wedge people sort of in the middle between the employer and the disability insurer in situations like this. But at the end of the day, it should be medical. It should be all about what the doctor is recommending in circumstances like this. And I think adjusters who don't take that into consideration and who might be influenced by other factors, like the backdrop of Emily's health issues, or perhaps how long she may be on claim, I think that becomes very problematic when we see that play out in a legal claim. Because it's it creates leverage for us. I mean, this is the kind of thing that we would leverage against the insurer within the context of a legal claim to get Emily the benefits that she's entitled to and then some. And so I, I think that when I see these sorts of situations, I'd much prefer to see Emily asserting her legal rights than trying to persuade the adjuster, no, 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 but but pretty please, like let me tell you, I'm really sick and I'm not feeling well and I cannot work 
and my doctor saying that I should be approved for these benefits. Yeah, we love that subjective thing. We love that subjective uh, excuse that they use for sure. Listen, if you're dealing with this yourself and it's giving you pain, panic, and strife, reach out to Tamar. There's always an answer. And uh, you probably don't know it, but Tamar's been doing this long enough to know all the ins and outs and get into weeds with these insurance companies for sure. And to do that anytime, one 821 Email we use, help at disabilityrights.ca. And I did mention mydisabilityquestions.com. That's a, a, a nifty website. Why? Because you can ask your questions there. And it's also designed to be searchable. So maybe a similar, if not exact, question like yours has come up over the last couple of years in the past. You can simply read the answer and move on or leave yours there. And tomorrow, a member of her team will answer it as well. My disability questions.com it's free it's anonymous and we're going there next on the disability law show hang in there coming right back disability law show continues few minutes to go thank you so much for uh, for reaching out via email or mydisabilityquestions.com to ask your questions on the uh, the show today beyond that reach to marner team 1-855-821-5900 and for uh, any other questions about ltd maybe it's a simple question maybe it's something you don't know a definition you can go to ltd FAQ.ca. Again, it's free and anonymous. Give that a spin. LTDFAQ.ca. But going over to uh, email again tomorrow. Here we go. Raheel says, guys, my doctor said I have anxiety and depression and has recommended I work from home for the time being. My employer has declined my request and I've appealed my disability claim. What are my options if my appeal is declined? Thank you so much. This is an easy one for you to handle, pal. It, it, it is right because this is yep. so so I want to give our listeners some context there is a group of lawyers a, a small team of us that do both disability work and employment work and I'm I'm one of those individuals and so this is why our firm is so well suited for these kinds of situations like Raheel's because we can address both elements of the claim because because there is a duty for your employer to accommodate you to the point of undue hardship Okay, and so I want to start there with Raheel because it's what I was saying in my in the prior segment, John. It's too easy for employers not to work with individuals who have health issues and try and figure out a solution. But they're legally required to do that. They have to work with you in that process. So they would they would look at you know brief medical information, not not the same details you would necessarily send to your disability insurer, but certainly details around these are your restrictions and limitations. These are the things that you're capable of doing. And so employer, you know, can we come up with either adjusting my current job or finding me a different job that would then allow me to continue working within these restrictions and limitations? So that's the starting point. But with mental health conditions like Raheel has, that can be challenging. It can be challenging not only because maybe you don't want to share that with your employer or because most jobs I would expect would impact you in the same way, right? And so... I mean, look, client-facing jobs, I think, would be much, much harder, but most occupations have some kind of social interaction, some kind of cognitive level that you need. You need to be on your game. And when you have anxiety and depression, it can be very, very difficult to navigate that and still continue and do to do your work duties. So I'm not entirely surprised, I suppose, in a situation like that, where they've encouraged Raheel to go and pursue the disability claim. So he's now done that. He's, he's been declined though. And so he's appealed and he's asking, look, what do I do if my appeal is denied? And I think that, you know, I'd want to see the medical information, but if it's there, then Raheel, you got to start that legal claim. I mean, I, I don't like the idea of him continuing to pursue the insurer 
time after time on a on a claim where the insurer may give their knee-jerk reaction that what as I said at the top of the show, John, that you can, you know, continue getting treatment for your mental health and still continue working, especially if the recommendation is that he work from home. Why is that the solution? Right? I, I don't understand why that's the solution for anyone, whether it's the employer or the disability insurer. And certainly I would have expected that Raheel would have talked to his doctor about that, right? And so, um, you know, I think that if it's either no work or all work, that can be a, a difficult, you know, fine line, I suppose, to manage and navigate with your own medical team. But you want to do that. You want to get some clarity around that so that you can really determine, is this something I need to push with my employer or is this something that I need to push with my disability insurer? And, and there is gray. And so I, I feel for people like Raheel, it's not easy to make that determination. But this is why I encourage people to contact us and, and speak to us because myself and many others on our team have that same level of understanding of, you know, wh- where do you go with a situation like this? Do you go to the employer? Do you go to the disability insurer? Or maybe you go to the disability insurer first and then you go back to the employer because that's also an option that we've done for lots of individuals who have not been given a fair shake in the process of accommodation to the point where they've required to have to go off on a leave and seek their disability benefits. Raheel, really appreciate the uh, the note. Again, as Tamar said, you can follow up with that phone call, one 855 821 5,900. Moving on down to Haley's up next is tomorrow. Uh, we spoke via email a few years ago, and I believe I need your assistance now. I'm a 19-year employee of a large financial institution doing mortgages. My earnings were strictly on commission plus benefits. I've been on LTD for my addiction issues for a few years now. Both my psychiatrist and I felt I was stable enough to start working part-time. The plan was to submit my pay slips to the insurer, and they could deduct my earnings from my monthly LTD payments. Uh, like I had done years ago while on a previous claim for an unrelated issue. I went ahead and got a casual position with another company as a support worker. A few months in now, and I've uh, just because I became a full-time employee, when I informed my insurer, I was asked to send my pay slips for the first month I worked, which I did. I'd received my full monthly LTD payment for that month. I didn't get a monthly benefit after that. I just got a letter saying I owe them money for the last full uh, month of LTD. Now my benefits been cut off and i'm hoping to get your opinion on my situation what do i do wow so Haley's situation is is a little bit complex john okay and so so let's unpack that for our listeners there are provisions in disability policies long-term disability policies that speak to what happens to your benefit if you go back to work okay and the idea is because it's supposed to encourage people right to return back to work And so most insurers will have a section that's called like rehabilitation section. They have different words to use. The words are not as important, okay? What's important is is that these policies contemplate the idea of a return to work and continuing to support an individual while while they are in this return to work process. So I call these like top-up claims. Um, In other words, the insurer will pay and your employer will pay for a period of time as you're gradually returning back to work. But it's not an easy process necessarily to navigate because it requires the cooperation from um, your employer and your disability insurer and obviously your doctors to make that determination as to whether or not it makes sense to return and 
to make sure that you're getting the right amounts, that you're receiving the right amounts, because the calculations are also can be fairly complex. So what I've seen happen is you return back to work, you get some earnings, those earnings get reported to the insurer, and then a month later, the insurer will calibrate with their calculation and their policy, and then they will cut you a check for some amount that's calculated, taking the earnings into consideration. But what Haley tells us is that she's returned to another employer. Right. And so the disability policy and the words in that policy then become critical as to her entitlements on whether or not the insurer gets to take the earnings, as to what happens with her ongoing LTD, because some policies also have a section that says, if you work in any occupation where you receive earnings, you are no longer entitled to LTD benefits. And I suspect that is the policy provision that her insurer is relying on because she has not returned back to her employer. She's returned to another employer. And in the process, even though she expected that she'd continue receiving her LTD, has perhaps disentitled herself to LTD inadvertently, mind you, in trying to make a legitimate attempt to work. And so I don't want to discount Haley's efforts. I think the fact that she's trying to do all of this is a real credit to her after having worked for so long with one employer and figuring that perhaps it didn't align with her health and her health status. But by the same token, when you make these kinds of decisions, it's critical that you understand that there could be consequences to your entitlement to benefits. And so if the insurer feels that they've overpaid you, they're going to come back and say, look, we need a credit back for the amounts that you receive from these other earnings. And the only way to know whether they are correct is to actually consult with one of us and let us look at the policy let us read what the insurer has said to you about all of this and then make a more critical review on whether they're correct on the payback amounts and the ongoing entitlement to LTD. Because if a provision like that is not there, John, then they may have prematurely cut her off while she's starting to transition back. And she had clearly an expectation that she would continue getting some compensation from the disability insurer. And I have challenged insurers on these kinds of top-up claims. They're not easy. They require some sophistication. But at the end of the day, if she, if Haley is owed money, then she should absolutely be pursuing that and pursuing her legal rights against the insurer to get what she's owed. Haley, nicely done. We appreciate the note. We got to fly. Thank you so much for the contribution. But always, as we say when we wrap up every show, reach out by phone to Tamar and her team as well. That email first, help at disabilityrights.ca. And then, yeah, that phone number anytime. Call toll-free, no problem, one 855 821 We'll catch you next time here on the Disability Law Show.